This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and this week I'm talking with John Mater. John came up in the Bay Area and spent the first part of his career there until a production of Hamilton brought him to L.A., where he has since called home. John stays busy with multiple theater productions in L.A. and also tours and records with guitarist Carl Verheyen. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly, and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. So John has played just about every major musical there is in one capacity or another and has become the first call for musical theater on the West Coast. The detail-oriented musical theater world is balanced out by his gig with Carl Verheyen where he gets to explore a looser creative process. Lots going on with him at any given time, so let's get into it. Here's John Mater. Look you right in the eye But you're testing my patience Checking some other guy Oh, my distracted girl You were namming last week, yes? I was. What were you doing at NAM? I was performing uh, on the Yamaha stage, the big stage in the in the courtyard there with Carl Verheyen mm-hmm. of uh, Super Trap fame and of, uh, of, you know, massive guitar player, hero type, not guitar player, the, or not guitar hero product. Right. But the... Um, An IRL but, guitar uh, hero. Yes. So uh, I've been playing with him for about nine years now, and we were playing on the... Uh, on the big stage outside and then I hung out um, and did some jamming with uh, Greg Bissonette at the Dixon booth Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah and then just made the rounds you know just like everybody else yeah so that's what I was doing is 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 like is making the rounds uh, uh, something you look forward to or just sort of a part of the job that uh, that you perform? (laughs) Oh, no, I love it because you get a chance to see all these people that especially drummers. It's not like there's a drum section on the on the gig or on the on the uh, or on the recording section. So you get to see all of these people that you 
that you know and love and and or like admire as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it'll, you'll be walking down. Uh, you'll be you know you'll be walking down in between um, uh, kiosks, and uh, and you'll be rub- literally rubbing shoulders with with uh, Stevie Wonder, you know, or or he's uh, always uh, there. He's always he's- there. <laughs> I know, man. I can't get rid of him. I'm like, Stevie, dude, give me some space, bro. <laughs> so, or, you know, Steve Gadd is hanging out, and everybody's very approachable. And yeah. uh, so I love that. And, of course, like all my friends and uh, uh, colleagues that are um, maybe maybe lesser known, but but it feels like a, a very, feels very much like a, a reunion, uh, especially uh, coming out of the uh, pandemic right. even more so. Um, so it was it, it's slowly getting back to normal. I was there on a Saturday and it's usually really jammed on a Saturday and it wasn't quite that. But there were still a lot of people there and it was it was a very good energy. And so um, it was a good indicator that we are getting back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. Is yeah. this the the first uh, uh, proper NAM that has happened since the pandemic? Or was there one last year? I guess there was one last year, too, right? There was one last year in June, and they're slowly moving it back to uh, the original uh, date, which is in January. Right. Okay. And so um, and the other thing that's really great, of course, it's the uh, it's the what National Association of Music Merchandisers. And so. Uh, and manufacturers. So everybody's bringing out their new stuff. You get a chance to check things out. Um, you know, you can't totally wail because it's like it, the decibel police are out there. Right, the noise police. Uh, yeah, but um, and for good reason. Yeah. Uh, it, my ears are just so tired because there's a constant like a low white noise that's happening the entire day. It's exhausting. And I, <laughs> yeah, and I, and I tell people if they've never gone before bring some earplugs because you don't realize how taxing that is because you're there for hours yeah yeah that and, and good and good walking shoes for sure <laughs> because you are putting on some mileage man yeah. i mean normally it's like what three football fields of just stuff yep and so yeah you do you do a lot of walking but yeah i i i um i, I really love it you know, it's a big love fest. Everybody's like running into each other and hugging each other. And and uh, I used to see every year I would see Clayton Cameron there. Yeah. And he and I both auditioned for Ray Charles uh, many, many, many years ago. And that's and that's how we met. And it, it's so great to I, I kept on reminding him that um, this is how we met. So every few years I would see him. I would just, you know, bump right into him at the NAM show. Hey, hey, Clay, yeah, this is John, man. We, you know, we we auditioned for Ray Charles, right? And and uh, and I was playing Hamilton down here, and uh, he reached out to me and said his his daughters were coming to the show, and um, but he was just going to drop them off because he didn't have a ticket to see the show. So I said, well. I mean, how would you feel about coming and sitting with me in the pit? Now, this is yeah. pre-pandemic, right? Where where you could occasionally have a guest with you, and so he sat with me during the show. Wow! And I, I didn't really 
realize what I was getting myself into, you know, having <laughs> having a legend like that sit behind me while I'm playing the show. <laughs> For real. And like, I mean, that's obviously not a jazz show, but like you got to play some brushes in that show, right? <laughs> Let's see. Are there any brushes? I don't know. I know. No, there are no brushes in that show. Oh, thank I thought God. there was like a little a little brush jam somewhere at some point. Um, but yeah, thank God if you didn't have to do that in front of Clayton. <laughs> you know, I've I've done that show a lot, and and um, and it's possible that there's a little brush thing. I don't recall. My, my I, I'm hardwired very differently. When I'm done with a show. I pretty much do a hard flush. Yeah. Like it is out of my brain. It's it's gone. Yeah. So I don't I don't really remember a whole lot of details or song titles or whatever. Right. Yeah. I'm kind of weird that way. Oh, no, well. I mean that makes sense. Like you've only got so much space on your hard drive and uh, you know, especially if you've got if you've got a new show to learn, um, you know, it right. takes up it takes up a lot of space. And my hard drive is more like a disk drive. <laughs> it's a floppy disk. <laughs> floppy disk drive, yeah. It just goes ka-chunk, 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 ka-chunk. Oh, man. <laughs> um, so, like, you, you've you played uh, a number of different productions of Hamilton in, in a number of different places. Um, what and where was the first one? Uh, the first one was in San Francisco. I got a call from the national contractor. He asked me if I wanted to do the show. He said, we'd love it if you did. It's yours if you want it. We'd love it if you did the San Francisco run. But we'd really love it if you also committed to the L.A. run as well. Mm -hmm. So that production... Um, was going to kick off in San Francisco and then move down to L.A. And it it was interesting because I had been playing down here by then for about five years, commuting down and playing at the Baked Potato with Carl a lot and, mm -hmm. and other clubs around here. And Carl was also getting me in on on some really good session work. So I would come down here and do a session at... Um, at at Sun Recorders or at Village, yeah. And, so you were um, you were still living in San Francisco, but coming down to L.A. often, right? Yeah. Right. And so it was kind of on my radar that I was thinking, oh, maybe. And Carl was encouraging me. Carl and Dave Murata, the the bassist in the band, he was also encouraging me um, to to maybe consider moving down here. Mm -hmm. But I'm a third generation Oakland guy, so I'm like, ah. Oh man, like, and I get, and and I, and I was a pretty big fish in a small pond. So, so you know, I, I got to play with Oz Noy and Steve Miller and uh, man, a lot of people. Uh, Pat Benatar while I was up there, and um, and I, I don't think a lot of people would think of San Francisco as a small pond, but compared to L.A., you know, it is. Yeah, C compared to L.A., yeah. No, no offense, no offense, San Francisco. <laughs> No, like if, uh, if it's not, I mean, I, I think of, uh, well, I don't just think of LA and Nashville and New York are the big ponds and, you know, even right. a city as big and vibrant as San Francisco or Chicago or Atlanta, where I live, like those are smaller, much smaller ponds. Yeah. And I would, yeah. So I should probably correct myself and say 
a smaller pond, not a small pond, but right. a smaller pond. <laughs> and I got, I got a, I start playing with Pee Wee Ellis, um, in the Bay Area as well, which led to me playing with Fred Wesley, which hmm. led to uh, Maceo going out on tour with us, mm-hmm. which was, you know, I mean, just insane. And I, and I, I played with Pee Wee on and off before he passed for almost fifteen years. Wow! So. You know, the guy who wrote Cold Sweat, I Feel Good, and like like 26 of James Brown's hits. Yeah. Uh, uh, Booker T. I yeah. got to play with, I got the Booker T gig because I was playing in somebody's living room in, um, in Marin. And uh, we had to play, you know, really quietly, but I was playing with excellent, excellent musicians. And we were just, um, we were just grooving, man, just grooving really, really hard, and but but keeping the volume really, really quiet. And so, the owner of the house approached us and said, uh, "Hey guys, I, there's a, a a guest who's a friend of mine. He was wondering if he could sit in on keyboards." And of course, you know, when you're at a party, you think, right. <laughs> you think, what do you think, Zach? I, think? I I think uh, uh, this is going to be a disaster that I'm going to smile through and just be a. Yeah. That's right. You know, <laughs> it's going to be a weekend warrior person who's going to come in and play. Right. The and it ended guy, up being, the lawyer. Yes. Guy. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So it ended up being Booker T. Fuck man. And he played, and he played for I don't know like an hour and a half with us. Like he was having a great time. Wow. And he actually picked some Ray Charles tunes that I knew. Nice. And so, so the f- that was on a weekend. And the following Wednesday, I get a call, and and uh, the guy says, hey, uh, "Yeah, is this John Mater?" And I said, "Yes." He said, "Hey, hey, John, this is this is Booker T. I got your number from the uh, guitar player. I really liked your playing. Are you uh, you want to do some gigs?" <laughs> and I said. I said, "Oh, let me think about." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and would. The answer is yeah. <laughs> so all of that, all of that came about from playing in the Bay Area, which, which you know, to your point, it might it might be a, a smaller pond, but um, but there's still a lot of things going on. Great players. I, I play with, I play with three guys up there who toured with Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. You know, and another yeah. guy chored with Charlie Parker, you know, yeah. like, so it's huge scene in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, so, the, the tour that I'm on, um, was, uh, in Memphis for a week recently and I got to go to the Stax museum and, and just get like a good dose of, of Booker T. It was really cool. Yeah. Fantastic. So you're on a, uh, ain't too proud to beg. Is that right? Is right. That ain't, ain't too proud is the, the temptation. Ain't too proud. Right. Yeah. Right. Great, awesome, man! What a great gig! Yeah, man, I'm having a blast. I'm really. I um, that's all. Yeah, that's yeah. What what a great gig, and what a testament to you because, you know, the, those being able to nail those uh, Motown grooves, it's 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 uh it's very uh very deceptive. Yeah. Yeah, they're not nope. they're not technically difficult, you know. They're all pretty straight ahead and and simple grooves. Um, but 
you know. But it's get, a dialect, right? Totally. It's a dialect. Totally. And you have and to be able very, to speak the dialect convincingly. Yes, it's a very specific uh, box that you're, you kind of exist in. And there's, you know, some freedom within that box, but like, you got to stay in it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I look at it kind of like acting in that, you know, like you are, you've been hired to have like a Swiss German accent for a role. Okay. Right. Well, great. Well, in the middle of a sentence or in the middle of a dialogue or a scene, you can't jump to like a different accent from a different area. Right. So you, um, so it's the same thing. I, the way I view it for us, particularly playing these shows, um, yeah, you have to you have to study all of these things. You have to really be a student of mm -hmm. the, of of all the things things be able all of these styles, because even with Hamilton. Yeah, man. There's a little bit of swing. There's yeah. also a little bit of Dixieland. Mm -hmm. It might happen for just a few bars, but for those few bars, they wanted to sound like the real deal. And so, you know, I I, I was in a, I, I played anything that I could. I just said yes to everything when I was coming up as a kid. So, so I I was in a I was in a funk band. I was in a big I was in, uh, big bands. I was also in a, in high school. I was in a Dixieland jazz band mm -hmm. when i uh, went to high school in san leander high it's the town next to uh next to oakland uh, greg field studied with the same drum teacher will kennedy studied with the same um teacher the great uh bill naraki a guy was, who was originally from chicago so i interviewed will kennedy about six months ago and and we talked yeah. quite a bit about san francisco like were were you coming up in san francisco at the same time that he was around there Yes, was... as a matter as a matter of fact, uh, my uh, our drum teacher one day he said to me I was a I was a sophomore in high school and he said, John, I recommended you for uh, this gig. It's kind of it's a it's a big band, and they've got dancers and a choir, and I think you'd be really good for it. So they're going to call you and ask you if you want to audition. So it was this it was this uh, band. Uh, called Youth of America, and they were sponsored by Pepsi, hmm. and I think another company, Shackley. And so they just took talent, talented kids in the region, mostly, mostly college kids, and you would play like corporate functions, and you, we would rehearse every Sunday at a high school, and they'd have all these great big band arrangements, and and uh, like I said, like dancers, so you're catching kicks. And right. you're playing with the choir, and the band was a big, big, big band. Mm -hmm. And it's all professional charts. So I go to the audition, and they said, well, yeah, our regular drummer's going to be leaving us. Is His name is Will Kennedy. <laughs> That's great. So uh, so I auditioned, well, skinny little, like, you know, sophomore, like 115 pounds of Rage and Fury. So... <laughs> So I auditioned and um and they they liked it and then Will was at the audition too and and he pulled me aside and said, Man, you sound really great. I think you'd be perfect for this. And so and I didn't know who Will was at the time. I think he was a f he was getting ready to go to college. And so he was graduating from Skyline High School. So they invited me to come on a gig so I could sit next to 
will and audit. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember it just like it was yesterday. Like I, I brought a tape recorder. I taped the whole thing. And I was astounded at at his feel, his groove. They had a, they had a few tunes that, that they were like, you know, big band funk charts. And mm-hmm. he would play, he could just play one and three on the kick, two and four on the snare. And it felt so amazing. I just couldn't <laughs> believe how he took something so simple yep. and made it feel so great, which, you know, we're circling back to your gig, which is like understanding the nuance of of playing a simple part, as, as you put. But it, but again, it's deceptive um, because like there's guys that can play something simple and just make absolute magic with it. And he's he's one of those guys. Like his feel that you hear today, he's always had that. Yeah, <laughs> he's always always had that. Man, and so it was uh, it was great. And but it shook me up, man. I had to go home and I had to practice my <laughs> tail feathers off <laughs> because I just thought, wow, I'm just. Uh, this gig is gonna, you know, it's gonna, I'm gonna lose this gig if I don't, I, I'm gonna need to step up. Yeah, I had the exact same experience coming into this gig um, because my, my predecessor uh, is, is a good friend of mine named Q Robinson, who's another Atlanta guy. Um, he's on the Hamilton tour now. Um, and he brought like such energy and such precision um, and such. Uh, intention to this drum book that like i had to shed for months and it wasn't about like learning the part it wasn't about developing the coordination to play the groove or whatever it was about um like adapting to that level of energy for a sustained Mm. period it was like training for a marathon you know for a while Mm. i was doing like one half of the show at a time right like i would i would do a full warm-up i'd get ready and i'd do half the show at like you know, full, <laughs> full energy. And wow. after that, I was exhausted. Like my hands were fucked. I was sweating and I was like, I, yeah. I can't do the second half. And so I do the second half the next day. And then after a few weeks of that, it was like my body got, you know, conditioned to go the distance with that show. And mm. then I had to step up to the two show days when I came onto the gig, you know? Yeah, man. Um, yeah. So, like, in that regard, um, what, okay, so going back to when you first got this gig, what, what uh-huh. year was that? Uh, the, the Hamilton gig? or Yeah, like when, when you got offered the San Francisco run. Oh, man, I, I'm so bad with, I don't know, I, I'm really bad with <laughs> years. I don't know, 2014, 2015? Okay, so gig. this was when it was still, like, relatively new on Broadway. Um and at that yeah. point, at that point, the only other drummer who had played it was was the original guy, Andres Ferrero. I'm I'm correct. assuming um, that's correct. Do, and so, like, uh, I interviewed him a few years ago, and mm-hmm. you know, talking about like the energy and the focus to play an entire show, he talked Woo. about. Yeah, he was he was like, uh, he said, if 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 you don't bring every ounce of your energy and every ounce of focus to this show every night, he said, this show will eat you. <laughs> and it kind of scared the shit out of me. Um, yeah. What did you, did you find that to be true? Like what was the process for you <laughs> of like preparing to do this show? That's a great, 
that's a really great question. So, uh, you know, I, I, I stay in pretty good, pretty good shape. Uh, I was, and I was in really, really good shape when I started doing the show, like good, like a lot of physical conditioning. So, um, I would say, so there are, there are a few things. One is I had, I was the very first drummer to play Wicked. I did the pre-Broadway premiere of Wicked in San Francisco with the New York cast. Uh huh. So, so they flew me out to, uh, they flew me out to New York to, to just sit by Gary Seligson, uh, the great Gary Seligson, who's, who was, um, who was the drummer and the associate conductor for that show happened to be Alex Lacamoire, a okay. young Alex Lacamoire. Yeah. And so that's what we started working together. And I knew his ears and I knew what to anticipate. And so when this came up, he said, yeah, let's call, let's call Mater and see what he's doing. And so, um, I know his attention to detail. I know he's got huge ears. Mm -hmm. I know that he, he knows my instrument maybe even better than I do as far <laughs> as like stylistic references. Yeah. He's, a, he's incredible. And so, um, so I knew I was going to have to, you know, put some time in, but I, I, you know, I also like, there were some D'Angelo references, like it would say on, on certain to like Washington by your side. It says the, um, D'Angelo vibe. Mm -hmm. Well, like Voodoo was like, oh, I just, I couldn't get enough of that album. So right. I just listened to it so, so much. So I, it was already kind of there. Um, and, but I will, I will tell you something after doing the show over and over again, I did San Francisco and then I did LA. Then I went back up to San Francisco and did it for a year. Um, or no, then we went to Puerto Rico and did it with Lin Manuel Miranda. Right, right. They they used the San Francisco band, uh, and then I came back to L.A. I think and did another run of it. Yeah. Oh no, they went to San Francisco after that. Then came back to L.A. Sorry for the confusion. <laughs> so so I've done two runs in San Francisco, two runs in L.A. and and. And the month-long run of the three-week three run in Puerto Rico with with Lynn uh, uh, reprising his role. Right. So uh, the conductor um, was uh, Julian Reeve, who's a really really good friend of mine. And we were doing the show in Los Angeles, and I and I recount this story to him all the time. He comes up to me after a show and he says, "So John, he's looking down on the ground." And he's like rubbing his chin. He goes, so I'm just kind of wondering where you're at with the show. And he's looking down on the ground. And I said, um, I'm not sure what you mean. And he says, well, like, yeah, I'm just kind of wondering where you're at with the show. Cause I'm just not, I'm just not really feeling you. Hmm. I just went, Oh, Wow. I'm getting I'm getting checked on my performance, mm -hmm. like I'm on my energy output, and it's such a slippery slope when you're doing the same show as you well know, eight shows a week. It it's really really easy to kind of lull yourself into coasting. Yeah, um, 
and it spreads like a disease in the band. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he he called me on it. And every time I play a show now, every time I play a show, I think about that conversation. Wow. And it just reminds me, turn you it need up. to crank it up. Yeah. You need to turn it up. Like, don't fall asleep at the wheel, man. You yeah. You are driving the bus. Drive the bus. Yeah. Man. So I'm going to I'm going to remember that now before every show <laughs> cuz I do man. not want I do not want uh Smitty Ooh, coming up to me buddy. and <laughs> saying I'm I'm not really feeling you man. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> yeah, you don't Yeah, that was uh, but I love him for that. Like I yeah, love yeah. that he came down and told me it, and the way that he told me it it, it was great. I, I've learned so much from conductors like little little bits of information. But, you know, like we're in a top, top performing field where we have to be our best. And it's not like it's not like the NFL where you've got like you have a staff of coaches helping you to keep your game. Like it's kind of all on you. Yeah. To keep your level of performance. I know what I need to do to do a good job and I need to be very, very thorough. I'm, I'm more thorough than most people I'm working on right now. I'm looking down at my snare drum and I'm seeing a chart from hairspray. So the drummer is, I mean, it's a little weird. So the, 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 the production comes into town and they have to use, depending on the production, how big the band is, oftentimes they have to use uh, uh, a portion of local union members. Yeah, that's all, what ours is doing. Or sometimes all. Yeah. So, and and as, as you know, these drum books tend to evolve beyond the ink. So the drummers have been out there playing the show for a long time. They start hearing different things. So they start adding things and subtracting. And most of the time, these are really great choices because sometimes the orchestrator has an idea and many times the orchestrator is right, but many times the orchestrator is maybe not right because they're not a drummer. I'd say Alex Lacamoire is definitely uh, an exception to that. Mm-hmm. When he writes a drum part, he really knows how to get inside that instrumentalist. So when he writes for a string quartet, it's stunningly beautiful. When he writes for a drummer, it's perfect. It mm-hmm. note for note, like all the fills that he writes are killing. Like everything is is great. Most of the time, that's not the case. So so drummers get in and they start massaging the parts a little bit, and and it, it evolves. Or you know, the, the the conductor takes some liberties, asks the drummer. So 
the so the shows come into town, my job is actually to disappear. So uh, I don't want to be playing the ink if the drummer is not playing the ink. So I go through and I transcribe all the things that the drummer's doing. So when they come in, we, and we have one rehearsal. We, we right. they come in. We get one rehearsal. Then we hit that night. So so and sometimes I'm playing drum set, African drums, triggering the click for the orchestra, triggering loops. I mean, you want to talk about pressure, man. Yeah. So preparation, preparation, preparation. It's super super important. Like yeah. really getting like I'll I'll think that I've got it. And then, and it's like playing a video game for me. I don't know if you've experienced this, Zach. Like I'll think, oh, I think I've got this. I think I'm ready to go. And then I'll play it one more time, and I'll see this whole other level. Like, oh, there's a whole other <laughs> thing. I I need to I need to get to this next level. I couldn't see it before. I had to play it a number of times yep. to see that next level that I needed to get to. Yep. So for sure, you know, as much as you possibly can before the first show you know as you know a uh one playing one show is worth probably 100 hours of practice right yeah so yeah um and i like what you said about you know and we've talked about it on the podcast a lot you said i know what i have to do to be prepared um and yeah. that's that's a very individual thing because everybody's you know, process is different. It takes, you know, different people, different amounts of time to really feel comfortable with a given thing. Um, and if you like, if you really know your process and understand yourself and know, you know what you have to do between now and then, um, that, that makes all the difference. Yes, sir. And I make sure like there's little things like I talked to my students about, you've got an odd, you have a first day of rehearsal with the conductor. Where's your music stand, and where is the conductor? Mm -hmm. like you want you want to have that conductor to be right above your music stand. Like mm -hmm. you want to be like you don't want to have the music stand over here and the conductor's over here. I right. will turn the flip and drum set completely around and face the opposite direction. I don't care because I know what I need to do. Yep. <clears throat> so, yeah, very very so important. You like you mentioned the um, when when you first got offered this gig, they said, "Okay, we're doing this San Francisco run. You know, we would like you to also do the L.A. run." What what chunk of time was that? Like, what you know, how how long a span were they asking you to sign up for? I think I think it was a year. I think it was uh, six months in San Francisco and another six months in L.A. So, so what was very, your calculus? Very first tour. Yeah. What was your calculus as far as like saying yes to that gig? Because it sounded like, you know, you're running around San Francisco, you're running between there and L.A., you're doing a shitload of different gigs. Yeah. And now you're asked to uh, basically, you know, be owned by one thing for a long period of time. So what was uh, your calculus yeah. there? Yes and no. Uh, you can. One of the beauties of the industry that we're in is you can use a sub. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for a run that is that long coming to town, I, I can use a sub for any other, any other gigs um, that come up. So like I started doing some gigs with John Fogarty. And so 
I had to have a right. sub. I had to have a sub set up so I could I could go do that. But I also spent a lot of time prepping my subs because that reflects on me. I don't want to get any phone calls. Yeah. Like I don't want to think about it. So um and subbing is really awful. I mean <laughs> like I, if somebody offered me the Hamilton gig to sub, I don't know if I would take it, man. I mean I would not. It, it's it's just it's just you don't but people don't understand you have no rehearsal. Yeah. No rehearsal with the orchestra. Nothing. Like all you do, all your prep on your own, and then you're in the gig. And as we both know, the gig is always going to feel different than the practice. Yeah, no, no sure. matter what you do. I, yep. I duplicate the whole drum set. Oh, I gotta buy stuff. I don't care. I've got I, I do an exact replica of the drum set that's going to be in the pit. And still it is just it's just uh a, it's a lot of pressure. Yeah. So um uh, so like was it a was it a tough decision to uh commit to this thing for for that long? Um no again for me uh because I could get out and sub I could, I could sub and get out and do some other things to you know, just kind of keep me energized and and still take advantage of other um, good career opportunities. Uh, that was great. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of have your cake and eat it too, right? And that's what I that's what I like about this gig. And and so you and you can't be fired for that. So <laughs> um, I like that. I mean, I like right. there's there's many many parts of this industry. Uh, being a theater musician that I love, but I wish the rest of the, uh, I wish the rest of the music world could adopt because, um, what I like is I like having rights. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You got no rights in the rest of the world. People playing in a top, top band singer wakes up in a bad mood, <clears throat> fires a drummer happens a lot. It's happened yeah. to a lot of people that I know and they've had zero legal recourse. So you spent all this time, money uh hours practicing with this band you get them up to another level and the singer goes ah i think we're going to go in a different direction and there's nothing you can do about it what yeah or they get a new manager and it's like oh well the gig i know the gig paid this but actually it pays this now Mm -hmm. what are you going to do again you got no rights you you can't do anything so so i i love our I love this industry because there's loyalty. Uh, it tends to be really healthy, very qualitative, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, and you get and you get paid. You get paid yeah. well. You've got the union behind you. Um, yeah. And apart from the union, I think you know the theater world. Um, there are there are so many moving parts on a production and so many different disciplines um, that all have to work in concert together. I don't think there is uh, th- there there isn't room for the sort of you know impulsive firing <laughs> that you're talking about. Um, it has to um, 
it it has to like you you build a machine right the people who are designing a show they build this machine and they make sure that every part that goes into the machine is a reliable solid part and then they don't fuck with it unless they absolutely have to yeah 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 you have to screw up really really bad really bad yeah or or die <laughs> or something like yeah they you know they won't they won't make a move and until they are really forced to um, yeah but yep. it's it's not just out of obligation it like there's loyalty there because um you know every production becomes like a family it's it's like this traveling circus and you're all sort of reliant on each other um yeah and it's that's it's not a great just point. Out of, yeah 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 i'm sorry finish your point no, I, I was saying like it's it's not just out of sort of a, a legal obligation that everybody's hanging together. You know, it, it it becomes this sort of all for one and one for all. You know, everybody's got a job to do. Nobody's job is more important than any, anybody else's, and let's all go do it again. <laughs> yes, and I, um, that's great that you brought that up. That it's a very familial thing, and I I love that. I love walking in the door and somebody in a production just grabbing me and giving me a hug, you know, just like, Oh man, you were killing last night. Oh, you know, like, Oh, this is so great. This is right. su such a great environment that there's, there could be a lot of, there could be a lot of love in mm -hmm. these, in these productions. And it's so nice to be around that energy. Um, and, and respecting the familial aspect of it because um, when a show comes in and they've had to let a portion or their whole band go, right? Like you have to really respect that. Like they're, mm -hmm. they're they're losing they're losing part of their family to come here to do this show, and you just really want to be respectful of that. And the way you are respectful is you you play the show like the road person. Yep. You put the time in, you put the extra time in out of respect <clears throat> for them, out of respect for the chair. Um, and, uh, and you play it and you don't play just the notes. Like you, you play like you mean it. Like it's, mm -hmm. and again, you know, you're the drummer. You, you are, even if you're in the basement, I do so many shows. I'm in the basement in a back room. Yep. It doesn't matter. They can feel me up there. Yep. They can feel it. When I'm when I'm in it, they they get it. Yeah. And so so yeah, it's really, really important, man, to push through that ceiling, man, with your energy and, and Dude, make sure you're I, just playing your best. Yep. My my predecessor Q um explained this to me because like there you know, part of it like you're you're in a box, right? You're in an ISO box or you're in a room somewhere. And like you said, it's kind of easy to go on autopilot. It's kind of easy to assume that, like, you just play the drums. You know, the sound guy is going to do, or sound gal, the, the A1 is, is going to do what they need to do to make it sound like it should sound out in the house. Um, and Q explained to me, he was like, what, what we are doing in this box is as if an actor had to be on stage with a paper bag over their head. Like you have to be even more energetic. You have to be even more precise yeah. and intentional with what you do in here so that it will, that energy will break through that box and get up to the stage. It's not just yeah. about what's coming out of the speakers. It's like that energy will translate through that box. Um, 
And he's absolutely right. And so it's just a reminder to like, it doesn't matter that I'm in this little box. I got to bring it every night. You got to put some booty on it, man. Always put that, boot, <laughs> put that booty on it. <laughs> yeah. And man, the actors will let you know, like you might not always hear about it from the, uh, you know, from the MD or from other musicians or whatever, but like, if you set something off, an actor will come up to you and be like, bro, fuck, that was great. <laughs> yeah. In terms of making a show your own, um, I think, you know, different different shows have different degrees of allowance for you uh-huh. to, like, kind of let your personality on the drums come through a little bit. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm experiencing that on this show um, you know, luckily the, the MD and the cast here are, are open enough to me not playing the show exactly the same way as Q did and not using the same sounds as he did. And that's kind of happened over time. Um, what was your experience of that with Hamilton? Because it seems to me, I mean, it's, it's probably the most precise book on Broadway. Like it is so specific and so intricate. How much room did you have over time to mold it to your sort of personality or, or, uh, agenda behind the drums? Uh, it's an ongoing process. Uh, if, if I were still playing that show, I would still be learning new things. Mm-hmm. Like the, like the great Tony Bennett, they, somebody asked him in an interview, how come you never change the order in your set? And he said, it's taken me decades and decades to get this order together. Like, what, why, why would I change it? You know, like it, it, everything just takes a lot of time. And and like Steve, what what Steve Gad talks about, like when they an interviewer said, "Ah, your time is so rock solid." He said, "You know, what's your what's your secret?" And he said, "Well, I'm always adjusting. Like you, you never." hear it but i am always thinking deeply about the time and where that backbeat is going and i'm just fudging things so slightly yep that you can't that that window is so small that a lot of people can't hear it per se but they can they can feel when when it ha- when he plays a simple group when will kennedy plays a simple group it's just like voodoo magic man it's like right. it's a, it feels incredible so um i feel like and using that that video game metaphor if he if you're always you know thinking actively thinking about the parts how can i play this better how can i play this better if you if you pose the right question to your supercomputer you'll you'll start getting some answers <laughs> yeah. So, and I love it because it's like a laboratory. It's it's a fixed environment. Nothing changes per se. So, uh, I will think, oh, if if I think about this groove this way or move my body in a slightly different way, yeah, it, it lays differently. Yep. And so, I love this. I I love the shows for that because I really get a chance to just refine 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 fine yeah and i love to see it through somebody else's eyes like another drummer will come and sit with me in the pit and they'll see the the end result of all that refinement and they're mm. you know they really react like oh my god this it's just so great like it's it's really amazing and i was well 
Yeah, but it's not like I sat down and played this piece like this the first time. Yeah. I've played this show hundreds of times thinking, 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 and refining, refining, refining. And you're seeing what you're getting, what you're experiencing is the end result of all that refinement. Yep. Yep. I, I, I so relate to that because so many of those refinements are um, tiny, <laughs> right? Like it's around the margins and it's not necessarily yeah. about, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not about um, creating a different type of groove or playing a different part or even making a, an adjustment that, um, you know, you're somebody else in the band or one of the actors or one of the audience members would perceive but a lot of the refinements are about how you experience playing that show and yeah. sort of the the different um the different headspace it puts you in it could be about like you know playing on that part of the snare head instead of that part or i'm going to use like this motion on the hi hat instead of that one and it's like super inside baseball stuff but it keeps the show fresh like you said you're constantly just like distilling refining how you play that show and it it can it can lead to um just a a different experience of the show for you like you know songs that you maybe weren't crazy about before you found a thing in it and you're like oh now you're kind of looking forward to that song because you found this way to do it that makes you feel good and you know yep yep there, it, it's a lot we were involved in live performance and it's an art form, and I use a lot of sports analogies, too, because it's they're performing live as well. And so, you know, Michael Jordan would, would throw a th thousand free throws every day before practice. Mm -hmm. before, And you would think, oh, my God, doesn't that get boring? No, because, like, there's there are u vast universes of nuance in that technique. Yep. And all the greats have really understood that. Yeah. All the greats at anything, at any sport, uh, musicians, whatever, uh, the, the, the value of the, the sum of the nuance. And a lot of, uh, I have a lot of my colleagues ask, how, how can I, how can you possibly do a show every night with uh, eight shows a week and, and, and you know, not get bored out of your skull. It's just, it's, it's that's that's where you, the attitude comes in. You know, um, when you start looking deeply into this, there are there's so so much nuance for you to think about. Yeah, you know, physically, mentally, intellectually, emotionally, the making of a good drummer and or a good uh, performance from a drummer, uh, there are a lot of ingredients that go into that, a lot of ingredients. Mm -hmm. Or else, why is it that we can listen to one snare drum hit or like from beat one to beat two and you go, oh, that's, uh, that's, that's Steve Gatt. Oh, that's, right. Steve, that's Steve Jordan. Oh, that's uh, John Bonham. Uh -huh. um, you know, these guys, the, the Holy Grail, Ringo Starr. 
Yeah. Ringo Starr, who is, <laughs> I saw him with Greg Bissonette. Um, and, or I saw Greg Bissonette with Ringo Starr. <laughs> right. That's uh, the. <laughs> and Greg is, you know, Greg is amazing, amazing player. I saw him when I was, uh, Right around that same year I joined that band and took over for Will Kennedy, I saw Greg and Matt play with Maynard Ferguson. Hmm. <clears throat> it, it, they were awesome. Like, and he's amazing. But there's they have two drum sets set up uh at for for the Ringo Star show. So he he goes back there and he plays Ringo goes back and plays drums on a couple of songs. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the time he enjoys being the front man. So, and he's got Greg back there, you know, one of the best drummers in the world. So, uh, but when Ringo Starr sits down in his drum set and he plays, you go, whoa. Yeah. It's like Charlie Watts. Yeah. You know, two, two, two drummers that were highly, highly, uh, um, uh, not, not very highly regarded by, mm -hmm. by drummers, but, um, you know, I defy anybody. And uh, Vinny Caliuta said it. He said, "I defy, I defy anybody to go into the studio and try to sound like Ringo Starr." Yeah, you won't be able to do it. Yeah, you will. You will. And same not for be able same for Charlie. It. Like, yes, right. Charlie. Charlie had to feel all his own, and yep. it, like, and those two guys, those two drummers. Um, I think like defined so much of rock drumming and they, they, they defined like two, two sides of the rock drumming coin. Ringo defined um, like the art of, of playing for the song. Yeah. Right? He, like his, his playing was so poetic. His parts were, you know, just bespoke and, and yeah. they, they interacted with the song in a poetic way. So like he was the poetry. Charlie was the vernacular. Charlie was like the dive bar, you know, uh, um, language of of drumming. And so many people who fell in love with drumming, like, uh, just carry those two guys with them, whether they became professional drummers or not. But like, yeah. the way that the in rock music, the way that drums interact with a song, like those two guys just defined. Two two different sides of it, I think. Yeah, exactly. And then John Bonham, like a whole another that's a whole another uh wonderful ball of wax there. Right. Like, you know, incredibly funky and powerful and and uh it, it, it soulful and yeah. Yeah. And uh so and I think that that I think that that's the holy grail is you know, we all have the we all have the potential to have uh, our voice on the instrument and uh just uh just like uh if you're if your good friend or spouse or partner calls you and says hello even without looking at uh uh who who's calling you uh when you hear when you hear those two syllables you know who it is right away yeah yeah. And we have the we have the potential to have that as a musician, not by the chops that you play, right? But by your feel. The chops is not determining whether or not you have a have a voice on the instrument. Can you do this? And someone go, oh yeah, 
that's so and so. Yep. I, I went to uh, one of my great stories. I'll, I'll keep this brief. I went to my in laws with my wife for dinner one evening, and we mm-hmm. walked in, and they were playing a CD of like some mellow kind of groove jazz stuff, and it ended up being a Joe Sample CD, mm-hmm. and it was you know very sparse, and it was the ubiquitous like mid tempo hip hop groove. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've heard it on a million smooth jazz uh, recordings. But I walked in, I heard that, and I went, ah. That sounds like an Omar Hakim hump. <laughs> and I swear to God, that was all he was playing. Yep. And when it picked up that CD, Omar Hakim. There he was. And there, yeah. there it is, man. That is the holy grail right there. If if people can pick you out by playing like a super, super common beat, job yep. done, mission accomplished. Yep. Ow. And like you said, that that is the result. Like that that is the that is the sum of a bunch of nuances. And I right. think some some players really uh interrogate and um uncover those nuances in an intentional way. Other players just have it right like they don't yeah they don't know you know they haven't they haven't investigated it they just do it right yeah um but uh yeah i, I love that phrase the sum the sum of all nuances <laughs> um yeah man yes uh, uh w- one guy i studied with uh really really great drummer from the bay area he he said you know if you want to sound if you want to sound like a certain drummer, if you're listening to that drummer three hours a day, it, it's going to, at some point, it's going to, you're going to cross over. It will yeah. rub off on you and you'll yeah. start, you'll start catching a little bit of that vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Jeff Mars. Great, great straight ahead drummer, man. He went to New England Conservatory. I saw him play at a club and he just had the whole East Coast thing down. And so I immediately started taking lessons with him and, uh, and yeah, so yeah, if, yeah, if you want to sound like any, any great drummer, you have to spend a lot of time just, just listening, just listening yep. man, and getting it into your bones. You're not too old. You're built to last. We talked a lot about sort of the endless uh, nuance and, uh, you know, the microscopic precision about um, playing a Broadway show. Um, the Carl Verheyen gig seems like the opposite. It seems like a loose, rootsy, very bluesy uh, thing. Um, mm-hmm. Am I correct in that assumption? Are you are you bringing a lot more precision and detail to that gig than I think, or is it is it the opposite where you're just in a much looser, freer sort of uh, mindset? Yeah, I, I think it depends on the song and the different sections of the song. But it's certainly not with the same kind of 
for lack of a better word, um, rigidity. Yeah. Like, um, you know, it's not like you're going to play these exact parts every night. You have a, you have a longer leash, you know, you can take more, uh, yeah, you can, you can take more liberties, uh, with the music. Um, now the certain songs we're playing ensemble figures and it's very notey and, you know, those songs, you might have to stick to the ink a little bit more. Um, but there's definitely a lot more room for you to uh, express yourself and be in the moment. And, um, yeah, so that's a, yeah, using a different, different part of your, of your brain. But, and with that, with that gig though, I've, I've made an effort to combine both worlds. So like I'm, I play anything that I need to do to get a sound that I'm hearing in my head. I just do it. Mm -hmm. And that might be having a maraca one hand, but I'm playing drums and while, and I'm playing kungas with my left hand and I'm, I might be singing a background vocal part at the same time. Like whatever I need to do to serve that song. If I'm hearing it, I'm going to try to, I'm going to figure out a way to make it happen. Mm -hmm. So it's been really fun in that way um, to bring a broader palette than just like a drum kit player, which is great. Like, that's awesome. But if I'm hearing a kunga sound, there's nothing like it, like a hand on a kunga. There's nothing I'm going to do on a drum kit that's really going to, if I need that thing, yeah, there's nothing on the drum kit that's going to do it, especially while while I'm playing a groove, right, with the right hand on the kit. So, um, so yeah, I, I bring, I bring all kinds of hand percussion things. I got all kinds of things going on back there, and it's just like a little candy here or there. It's really refreshing for the listener, especially within that kind of. I guess like genre, you know, this yeah, is, that's yeah. pretty unique. You don't see people doing that too often. Right. And, um, so, yeah, I just like the, the, the broader, the palette, as long as it's like appropriate spice, you know, I don't want to ruin the stew, but I do like <laughs> to have, I do like to have maybe a broader, uh, uh, a larger spice rack to draw from. Yeah. Now I'm yeah. not going to throw everything in there because I realize that 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 that's very immature. Yeah. So, but I'm listening for textures. I just want like this texture would would be really great in this slot, and it's not an overplaying thing. And that and comes these... from a, that's just comes from doing a million like weddings and corporate parties where I see how people respond, and it's not responding to a lot of licks. It's it's responding to getting the right sound and hitting the right pocket, the right tempo, all yeah. of that. So, you know, I would make my own triggers and pads and I'd have a electronic rack because if I'm playing a tune that's highly produced, I kind of want to sound like that Yeah. because that's the one thing that I can control. I can't control if somebody's going to call me and I'm going to get a big gig or whatever. But what I can control is right now on whatever gig this is, I don't care if it's a, I don't care if it's a wedding in somebody's backyard. I don't care if it's a if it's a if it's a dive bar that I'm playing. What I can control is 
making it as musical as possible and having people really, really feel something from it. So as far as like using that larger spice rack, um, yeah. are those choices that you make in the moment and, you know, a, a given song will, will sort of have a different feel or a different flavor from night to night? Or is it, like you said, kind of another, um, like you were talking about with a musical, another process of sort of distilling and refining like what you want to do with this and finding it and then, but but you just have kind of a bigger uh menu of options to to choose from yeah it'll come at different times like sometimes we'll be i'll be playing it on a gig or we'll get out on the road which is nice we were in europe for almost a month last august and so playing the songs every night you wake up the next day and you go oh yeah it's just like the answers are, again it's just like always ask, asking the question how can i make this more impactful mm-hmm. how can i make this more musically impactful for the right. listener and it'll be like, oh yeah, uh, um, yeah, you need the shakers or like some African nut beads on this part. Hold them in your right hand while you pl- or put them on the snare drum when you're playing two and four. Like, and then I'll try it, and the guys in the band will respond, and then I'll say, okay, cool. Well, I am, uh, and I'll hear it, whether or not I like that color, right, and. Uh, yeah, but sometimes I'll be packing up for a gig and I'm looking around in my garage and <laughs> my wife had got me a washboard. She said, you ought to use this on a song. Oh, yeah, okay. And we were getting ready to go to a gig and we were doing the song called uh, Leaving Louisiana. And uh, I thought, oh, wow, like the song is like Louisiana. Carl starts it with like a scratching thing. And it, I thought, wow. I think the song, I think this is going to work for this song. So if there's I grabbed a the song com- to use the washboard on, it's <laughs> you know, right. It's the exactly. Louisiana song. It's the Louisiana song. So I brought it to the gig. I said, hey, Carl, I, I think I had some kite string or something, like put a couple <laughs> nails in and like, and then took off for the gig. It just, it just came to me right then at that point, like do, do this. Yeah. And, I, and I got to the gig and I said, Carl, man, what do you think about this? I didn't. I didn't have any like thimbles or anything. I had to use a couple of drum keys. Or yeah, I had yeah. some some rings. I think I used rings, a bunch of rings, <laughs> just to get a vibe. And so, so I, I in the beginning of the song, I stand up and I play that, and then I jump behind the kit, and I and then I come in with the kit, and people loved it. They just yeah. loved it because visually it was interesting sonically orally it was really interesting it's just like oh yeah we're gonna put a little you know how about a little saffron right here (laughs) right right so and so that leads me to um a a quick story i was playing um uh I, i was invited to do play in a band with uh with carl another band that he has with two different drummers it's Chad Wackerman and John Ferraro. And uh, they're called the Crank Tones. So hmm. uh, John Ferraro was out on the road with somebody uh, super, super famous. Um, he wrote, Do You Know the Way to San Jose? Yeah, okay. Everybody's going to know that answer, except I'm drawing a blank right now, which is embarrassing. But <laughs> um, so 
he recently passed away. John Ferraro was out on the road with him. So they asked me if I could do it. And I'm like, oh, filling it for John Ferraro. And then I'm playing on the same stage at the same time with Chad Wackerman. <laughs> of course, I said yes. But then I just like. I had this pit in my stomach. Of, uh, right, what have uh, I done? And it's at the baked potato. <laughs> yeah, and it's at the baked potato. All oh, these Christ. musicians, all the drum nerds will be there. Yeah, with, you know, and uh, you three know, feet uh, away from you. The scorecards <laughs> will be coming out. <laughs> so, I just thought, all right, this is okay because I'm singing backgrounds. I'm playing. I play percussion and drum kit, and I got, and I've got the washboard. <laughs> So we're doing this one song on the second set. And I decided, ah, oh, the song, I think the, the song is kind of like a Cajun thing. I'm going to pick up the washboard, play washboard. So I'm standing up playing washboard. And then I remember, oh, Chad and I are supposed to trade fours. Uh. <laughs> and I think, okay, well, I can just sit down and trade fours and I can still have it on or I can take it off, whatever. But then I thought, no, keep the washboard on. Yeah. Trade fours with Chad on the washboard. Yep. People went freaking nuts. Yeah. They yeah. loved it. It was unique. Right. Right. It was an experience for them. It was, uh, you know, you, you avoided, um, uh, uh, being in any sort of competition <laughs> with Chad Wackerman or being compared to him in any way, whether right. you would want to or not. Um, yeah. But yeah, I love, I love that you just sort of like, um, uh, leaned into the difference of it. Yeah, exactly. People loved it. The band loved it. I got all kinds of calls the next day, tons of accolades. Um, there's a great, I think this. I think there's a really great photo of Chad and I, and I'm playing washboard and he's looking at me smiling, you know, that's it's, so cool. Yeah. I mean, just to be, just to be loose, uh, you know, I, when I first started getting into like soloing and trying to develop some ideas, I started entering solo competitions and then I, and, and I, I was winning. Uh, but the thing is, is when you throw the word competition into music it's they don't mix very well yeah you know yeah. um like if you're if you're going to be an artist like be, be comfortable in your own skin make your own statement and it, it's it's very it's it's a trap it's an easy trap to fall in especially when there's two drummers on the stage or there are drummers yeah. that come in and see you and yep. um I always recommend effortless mastery by Kenny Werner he talks yeah. about this whole thing and how we fall into these traps that are actually fear-based. I am trying to impress you with my technical prowess. Mm -hmm. That is that when you get to the base feeling of that, it's fear. Right. It is fear. Like instead of I am going to groove you so hard, I'm going to play something that is so musically impactful, you are going to be reduced to tears you're going to be so moved by what i do by doing very little yeah yeah so i, I think about, we've, I know we've lost our mastery. way 
we've lost our way a little bit as drummers. I think, you know, um, sorry, no offense, but you know, the gospel chops thing, all the cutting and all of that, it's produced a lot of creativity, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. But what are you going to do with that creativity? You know, because if you're always getting in the boxing ring, like there's, there's not a whole lot of art there. Yeah. And that's not what Steve Jordan is doing. That's not what Steve Gadd is doing. That's not what any of the greats are doing. They're right. doing they're doing them. Yeah. Yeah. And there are drummers like there there are gospel choppers who have figured out a way to to make that expressive and make that artistic. Um Absolutely. But I think if you take if you take any style to its extreme, it becomes more technical. It becomes more of an Olympic event than an artistic statement. Um, yeah. You know, the yes. same could be said for for metal drumming or drum corps or or whatever, you know. Um, I, yes. And, and I will say, you know, I have to choose my words really carefully because I don't want to be sounding like I'm bagging on, on that. But there is a certain attitude that is a tendency that comes along with I need to play fancy stuff to impress people. Like, yep. eh, is there? So my my question like uh, I can't play any of that stuff. Like all those guys can play me under the table mm-hmm. uh, uh, with the the the, the technical uh, 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 the technical ability is just uh, astounding, and um, and no, I think the Holy Grail is what guys like maybe like a Steve Gadd, Alex Cunha, uh, uh, and some and some of the younger guys that are that are out. Um, they're able to take all of that and boil it down. And, and like the, I think the real Holy grail is to play something technically that's challenging, but it's still serving the music. Yeah. And it's like, it's serving the music and it's, it's something that you give a shit about emotionally, like from an expressive standpoint. Like you can right. tell, you can tell when a musician is playing something that they are connected to. I talked about this with Cindy Blackman a couple of weeks ago. Like you mm-hmm. can tell when a musician is like emotionally connected to what they're playing, and it yeah. could be something. It could be something super simple. It could be something super complicated. But if if that emotional connection isn't there, then it it doesn't land with me. And I think. Also, the person in the back of the room who's actually paying to get into the club. Um, that's the person you want to reach, you know, it's like, yeah. um, should I like, do, do I really want to be wrapped up in what drummers think of me? Or is it, <laughs> yeah, or is like what my employers think of me, what the fans think of me who are not drummers. My, I, I rather hit the person in the back of the room who doesn't know anything about drums. Like I, we yep. were playing in Germany, and I did some drum solo, and and this um, and this woman approached me. And she said, "You know what? I absolutely hate drum solos. I <laughs> always leave when there's a drum solo. I cannot stand <laughs> drum solos." She said, "But your drum solo, I was totally moved by. It was so musical, and I absolutely loved it. Like that." To me, that was the best compliment I could ever get from from anybody. Anybody. Yep. yep. And I think that's that's really. I think all of that stuff is great, but it's got to be a balance. For sure. And and what you just described is one of the differences 
between the music business and the drumming business. And I'm mm. not making a judgment call about either one because there are plenty of people in the drumming business who are making a great living, who are amazing people, amazing drummers. But like you said, who are you trying to reach, right? Is your, is yeah. your playing and is your intent geared towards drummers or is it geared towards random people who came to the show that night? Um, and I think yeah. it's, it's uh, you know, one of your responsibilities if you're in the music business is to gear your performance towards, you know, the people who bought the ticket to come see some music. Yeah, you mentioned you got uh, hairspray charts on your uh, on your snare drum. There is that that uh, that run is coming up. It's coming up, yeah, at the Dolby, May May second. How long is that run? Three weeks. Cool. So you got three <laughs> weeks with hairspray. What what else is coming up with uh, Carl? or anyone else oh let's say carl we just finished the new record uh we recorded it um oh we just we just finished vocals we did it at that that the vocal stuff we did at chad wackerman's new studio um so yeah that's coming out and we are doing the pacific northwest uh the end of the end of june early july will be at the triple door in Seattle, really great, great club, and uh, we'll also be at the 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 Birdhouse or the Treehouse on Bainbridge Island, and then we will be um, playing on Orcas Island also. And wow. um, those little islands around uh, outside of Seattle, there are really are really cool. Yeah, they're great, man. And we've we've had some really good success playing up there. It's it's uh, not a lot of people get up to the islands to play. So when we do, it's a it's a, I think it's a little bit more of a special event. Yeah, for them. Yeah, yeah. So um, um, this yeah. this show was in Seattle for two weeks, and man, it was the best eating of the tour so far. Like it was <laughs> just off the chain. I. I, I hurt myself in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. You're at, you're in Atlanta, right? Yeah. Not right now. I'm in where the fuck am I right now? Columbus. All right. But so yeah, I live in Atlanta. You're based in Atlanta. Yeah, we we toured through Atlanta. We played the City Winery. That's a nice room. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Really really nice room. Yep. And that that like was some that pretty one. pretty good food as I recall too. Yeah, but, man. But Atlanta's yes, got great food. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Good luck with the hairspray run. Good luck with the uh, the Carl traveling. And uh, it was it was great talking to you, man. Yeah, man. My pleasure. Good luck on the road there. Thank you. Thank All you, right, sir. brother. Be well. There you go, John Mater. Thanks to him for joining us. Next week, Matt Krause will be bringing back our old buddy Rich Redmond, who has just released a new book entitled "Making It in Country Music: An Insider's Guide to the Industry." Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.